0: This morning I will be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see.
1: Well, the, the sight that I have of all of us together is incredible, and uh, it really does remind me to encourage you. We need to pray that God would, would create a spot for us to worship together each Sunday, not, not just this Sunday. Let's ask God to, to come together, hearing you sitting in the front and hearing you sing and seeing you all gathered here is it's incredible. I wish you all could see what I see. Well, if you can't have fun preaching on Easter, then you really should be out of the pulpit. So this is gonna be a really sweet sermon we're praying. Uh, We prayed over here that the familiarity of the resurrection uh, would would vanish in your minds and you'd be overwhelmed by what you just heard. You know, many of you know that I, I love last sayings or people, you know, their last words. You know, most people, when they speak last words and they have the opportunity to do that, um, there's kind of a, some do it in mocking of death. Some do it in jest because they fear, they fear dying. But by and large, when people have the opportunity to say last words to someone, it's significant. They, they weigh them, they measure them. It's important. They, they want to say the right thing. And you know, the people listening they write it down. They think about it. They respond to it. They may obey it. What we have here is Jesus's last words. This is his final commissioning, right? In verse 50 to 53, it's the ascension. So he goes to be with the Father. This is the last thing he says. These are incredibly important words. It's kind of parallel to Matthew 28. That's that final commissioning that is taking place. And what he's doing is he's going to send them into the world with this message of hope. As Ronnie prayed, this issue began in the garden, right? Back in Genesis chapter 3, that's where our problem began. And we're living in the brokenness of this world. Jesus has come to remove us from the wilderness and bring us back to God. So so this is a huge—he's going to send his, his disciples out to declare this message. But notice what he does. Uh, The first thing he does is he proves the resurrection. He establishes its reality by appearing and and by showing himself. But then secondly, he reveals that the resurrection isn't just proven, but it's also promised. That's why he refers to the Old Testament. And and he speaks about the law and the prophets and the Psalms. They They all wrote about it. It's all in there. And only after it's been proven and promised, then it begins to be proclaimed. And that's what we have in the commission here. So let's just walk through each one. Uh, First, though, we want to see how he decides to prove the resurrection. Look with me back at 36 to 43. He says, "And they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, it is I. Touch me and see, for a a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it native before him. So I want you to see Jesus is clearly trying to prove to them, to affirm to them that what you see, what you are seeing is, is real. It is me. Now notice, though, the context. He comes to them when they were discussing. Who's discussing what? Well, this would have been the disciples gathered together. They were together, probably in the upper room, And if you remember in the passage before this, you have the Emmaus disciples, those two disciples unnamed, they meet Jesus, they walk along the road with him, and when he breaks the bread and then their eyes are open and they see it's Jesus, well, they would have returned to Jerusalem to report what they had seen. But probably the women from Matthew or from Luke 24 verse 8, Mary and Joanna, remember they ran to the tomb and they looked and there was no one there. So can't you imagine what they were discussing? I'm sure they were discussing it. They were disputing over it, thinking, are you crazy? Did you really see him? You can just imagine the delight and doubt mixed together in their mind. And so it's while they're discussing that Jesus appears. There's no creaky door opening. There's no footsteps coming. He just appears. And what does he say? He says, it is me, myself. It's me. It's me. It's not a spirit. It's not a phantom. It's, it's not a ghost. It's me. Can you imagine? And then what does he say to him? So he, he's been dead. He comes back and says, peace to you. I mean, think of all the things that he could have said. I mean, he could have said, where were you when I needed you? I mean, in my hour of weakness, you departed, you abandoned me. There was no harshness, no rebuke. Jesus says, peace to you. I mean, just the compassion and the mercy of Jesus Christ, not bringing about a strong rebuke. They had promised to be with him even to their death, and they didn't do it. But he says, peace to you. That's what he's come to bring, right? I mean, the angels, when he was born, What do they say? Glory to God in the highest, and peace among men on whom his favor rests. He came to bring peace. I hope you know this peace that would come from one that has come out of the grave. I mean, there, there is a peace that he has come to bring, a reconciliation with God, a forgiveness of sins. We don't need to fear seeing God, because all things have been made right. We're in good shape. All things are clean. So he says, peace. In. So what do they do? Notice we get such a picture of humanity through them. They recoil. They're startled. This isn't a bump in the night kind of scare. This is, Luke puts two words together that really indicate fright, fear. They don't recognize him. They don't think it's him. And you notice something about the passage here. They didn't expect him to come back right? I mean, the Jewish mind believed in the resurrection, but it was on the final day. It was on the final day. No one would come back to life and be changed and enter this old order of life, a Genesis 3 life. They didn't believe that. really encourages us in veracity of the account. They didn't expect him. That's why they're startled, and that's why they're shocked. And so they're looking at him, and what does Jesus do This is really a good word for us. He asks him a question. Why do doubts arise in your heart? Again, you see the gentleness. He's using questions to draw us to himself. Why do doubts arise? And then what does he do? He doesn't move in frustration over uh, over their dullness. But he says, look at me engage your eyes. You've got eyes in your head. Look at me. Engage your senses. They've already heard him. Now he's saying, look at me. Then he says, touch me. Put your your hands in the scars. It's I. It is me, myself. It's me appearing to you. You see the kindness of Jesus coming and, and, and helping them overcome their doubt and fear. It, notice what it says, though. In the text, it says they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. What does this mean? Well, I mean, I think, you can th- I think you can imagine what it means. If you see a dead person standing before you that was dead and now they're alive and their scars are right there, what would you do? I mean, your mind would be shooting everywhere. I, I mean, even in a, in a microscopic example at uh, the times that Carol and I prayed for things and we prayed and we labored before God and he answers us in our prayers and then we say what I can't believe he did that I mean I, I can't believe God did what we prayed for you know exposing the own doubt in my soul I, I think that's what they were caught between I believe help my unbelief kind of thing overwhelmed and yet uncertain but notice what Jesus does to their persistent disbelief, he says, do you have anything to eat? Now folks, I know most of you are just near being biblical scholars. He wasn't hungry. It wasn't, I've been in the tomb three days, I'm starving, I'd love something. It wasn't about hunger. It was about helping these disciples understand. And so he says, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of borrowed fish. Now spirits don't eat They don't have throats. They don't have stomachs. They don't have a capacity to process food. He's doing it for them. He's appealing to their physical senses to help them understand. It is I. It is me. Kindness of God here. So, folks, Jesus came to prove to them the reality that though he was dead, he now is alive. And standing among them. A, a couple things it proves for you and I to kind of walk away with. One would be it, it proves the glory of Jesus Christ, right? It establishes Jesus. If you are uncertain about who he was or what he claimed to be, everything's cleared up for us, right? He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He's the one that has come to save. Nobody else has experienced this, only he has. It establishes him as glorious and as sufficient to save. He is sufficient. So he did come to make peace, and the fact that he was raised establishes before us that he did, in fact, make a legitimate peace. You don't have to wonder, was he enough? In fact, Paul kind of draws these implications in Romans. He says, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. So by his resurrection, we are to see, yep, God's affirming, he is the Son of God. But then he says in chapter four, he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What I'm saying is this, is that Jesus being raised establishes to us we've been justified. We've been forgiven. So those of us who want to keep clinging to sin and thinking, you know what? Well, God might be able to forgive me. I can't forgive myself. My sins are too great. You don't have an argument. You don't have a leg to stand on. He was raised, establishing for us. He has earned for us forgiveness and peace with God. Friends, we are to be the ones who rejoice in this. The rest of the world is burdened by guilt and shame, carrying corpses from years before. And yet he says here, no, he's been raised for our justification. Listen, Paul said, and he made it very clear in 1 Corinthians, he said, if Christ is not raised, then we are men and women to be pitied, because we've just been so gullible, that that we to be pitied. We're liars because we're promoting a message that's not true, and, and here's the kicker: we're still dead in our sins. Now that that ought to overwhelm us because now we aren't clean. Uh, we still are dragging all these things behind. We still have a day before God where we have to count. But but not so. His resurrection means we've been justified. Rejoice if you're if you're still. I I, I pray that for the Christian here who has trusted in Christ, you will not walk out the door. You may remember them. They may remind you of God's glory in your life, but may they not burden you. Not on this resurrection day. His resurrection was to establish we have peace with God. But but it also establishes the fact that he's gentle. I mean, look at Jesus. He acquiesces to them, doesn't he? He moves to their needs. Uh, I'll even eat fish for you. I'll, I'll show you my hands, my feet. You can touch them. You see the compassion of Jesus. So many times I think we, we've, we look more at ourselves and our own brokenness and our own failures and, and we don't look at his care and his kindness to us. You know, J.C. Rawls said that he is much more willing to forgive than we are willing to be forgiven. He is much more willing to pardon than we are willing to be pardoned. He says, there is in his almighty heart an infinite willingness to put away man's sins. D- do you sense that? I mean, those of us who have maybe hesitated taking to him our sins, maybe you've fallen into that cycle of, I've got to clean my life up. I've got to start doing things better. I'm going to make promises to God. And that kind of engenders a confidence in you to reenter God's presence. You don't need to do that anymore. You see a compassion here that's unique. And not only is this compassion, it's almost like his kindness is meant to draw us to himself, that we would seek repentance. I will go to him. I will take my burdens to him. He is gentle. He's kind. He's lowly. We're just saying about it. But there's some instruction for us, too. Do you notice how kind he is to the weak disciples? Kind of dull kind of missing the mark, we could, we could really emulate some of this. You know, when you think about those Christians in your life, they're new maybe in the faith, maybe they're troubled, maybe they're constantly struggling and trying, they're, sh- they're just kind of fouling up all over the place. Could we be patient with them as well? I mean, I, and, and not trying to cultivate a weakness in somebody, but might we capitulate a little? You know, might we bend a little bit for them? Uh, trying to meet them along the way like Jesus does with these disciples. I think it, it, it's a lesson for us. So first, this resurrection proves that Jesus is the glorious, right? He's the king. A new age has begun. begun. He's been raised, but, but he's also been kind to us. But but then secondly, it speaks to you as well. It speaks to me. It speaks to us about hope in the face of death. I mean, you see Jesus, right? He he comes out, and when he says look at me and touch me. He's showing them the scars so he was raised in the body that he died with. So we say in in theological terms there's continuity and discontinuity. There's continuity. It's the same body that he was living with among the disciples. It has now been raised. Discontinuity in that it's changed. He appears. He disappears. That it's not working in exactly the same measure. There's continuity, same body, but different. Friends, this is the hope that we have, that we shall too be raised, and you're raised with your bodies. The dust is gathered together, changed, different. You know, as as Jeremy spoke about from First Corinthians 15 in prayer, the, the perishable will put on imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, the physical will put on spiritual, and the weak will put on strong. But 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 we are the same. There's continuity and discontinuity. This means you don't have to fear death. Death is the great opponent, isn't it? But he says we're going to be changed and like him, to be like him. In 1 John he says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's the hope that we have. Now listen, the greatest fear for men and women from the dawn of time has been death, the brevity of life. It's all going to end. Right? No one gets around death. All must go through death. Luke Ferry wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. He's a French philosopher, and he's writing on philosophy and the origins of it. And in his book, he speaks about that really death and trying to have meaning in this life that that's what birthed philosophy. It's what birthed. How do we find meaning and value in a life that we know ends? What kind of ultimate value and purpose can we have when it all ends? And you know, within a generation you're forgotten. There's a certain irreversibility about life Edgar Allan Poe in his poem The Raven if you've read it the, the the raven is perched on the ledge saying nevermore 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 and this idea was that you can never go back everything's irreversible the sweet birthday you had when you were 5 the friendship you had that you can't go back there's a certain there's a certain weightiness that comes on when you think about the reality of death never more never more and yet Jesus has come and put our death to death so that we have life you have life for the Christian here you don't need to fear death you don't need to fear the irreversibility of life you don't need to fear these things that have gone past they've been forgiven reconciled he's making all things new in fact The writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, I I tell you, if there's one day for you to think about the brevity of life and then laugh that he has conquered death. You know, I've shared with you before that a tradition within the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church, they laugh on Easter morning. They just begin the service laughing. They're laughing at death. They're laughing that Satan thought he had crushed the Savior, but he has come forth out of the grave. So we can say with Paul, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal body through his spirit. Do you believe that? That if you have been born again, the Spirit of God dwelling within you, you will be raised as Jesus was raised. Does this not change the way we look at life tomorrow and the next day? He says in Second Corinthians, we also believe knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Is that an incredible? Pre- that, that, that is our hope. That is our hope. Some of us this year are going to be receiving bad news. Some of us will, the Lord may draw us to himself. We need this truth that he died, but he was made alive, and those in him will be made like him. Friends, this is is something to be celebrated, and I pray you would celebrate it with me. But not just that. Do you see how the resurrection also kind of challenges faith? Do you see that seeing is not believing? I can't tell you how many times I've heard from someone say, well, if I could just see it, then I believe it. Not so. Look, we got evidence right here. You can see it and not believe it. There's something about faith. I think sometimes we struggle with believing this and maybe you're struggling right now. It just seems too good to be true. It just seems, you know, we have this expression, there is no free lunch. There's no free lunch. And we just think, if it's too good, then I can't believe it. And yet we find here, that's what they struggle with. It seems too good to be true. Friends, it's true. We have these eyewitnesses. He says, look at me, touch me. I'll eat food in front of you to help me, to help you believe. So first, we see here in this story that Jesus has come to prove the resurrection. And and he's done that. But notice also that he's come to show us that the resurrection was promised. It was promised. Look with me at 44 to 47. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, so here you see, let me just point out if I can, back in the text, you see again the gentleness and the mercy of Jesus. He says, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. This was like a I told you so moment that he took a pass on. He could have, I told you so. These were the words I spoke to you. But gently he reminds him, I did say this to you. I did say that all these things must be fulfilled. In other words, this idea that Jesus had to suffer and die and then be raised. That, that it wasn't a misfortune. It wasn't something that we should lament over. It's not something that is a problem. No, it was all written about. It, it, by necessity, I had to do it. God had planned from the beginning that the heel of the seed would be bruised and he would be bruised in death so as to give us life. That was always God's plan. God always intended to save. He always intended to redeem. He always intended to pull back to himself his creation. And he was going to do it, not through any man-made effort, but through his own son. It must happen this way. And notice that he says, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Nowhere do you see that. He's showing the totality of Scripture. All of Scripture is pointing to and establishing the reality, it had to be this way, all of it. Now it says he opened his mind to the scriptures. Hadn't they already understood some of these things? I believe they did, but I think he's giving them a deeper understanding of those texts, like in Psalm 22 or Psalm 69 or Isaiah 53 or 2 Samuel 7. He gave those texts to show, no, these are pointing to the Messiah. These speak of me. These are pointing to me. All these things are establishing. And and here's why I think he goes here. Because guess what? We're not eyewitnesses. We've never seen him. But those who saw him, I think what Jesus was doing is saying, don't just believe because you've seen me. Rather believe because it's been established in the word long before you existed. So that all those who follow don't need to say, well, I've never seen him. I can't really believe it. No, 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 it was written about before. God had established the truth of it in his word. I think what he's drawing us to do is do you trust in God's word? Do you see how Easter actually establishes the truthfulness of the scriptures? I I, I mean, what he's doing is the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all these things are speaking about Jesus. We can read them now. We can understand them as evidencing the reality that yes, he had to die and suffer suffer, die, and be raised again. But I also think that that he wrote these things to help us really with a hermeneutic. In other words, how do we read the Old Testament? How do we understand the nature of the Old Testament? And, And we're to understand when we read the Old Testament, we're to be looking at its historical context and the grammar in which it's written. But we also read them to see what are they saying of the Christ? Because the Old Testament is a bunch of promises made And the New Testament is really a promise cap. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, he says all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All those promises of God in the Old Testament, they find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfection of God's revelation. We can trust in his word. We haven't seen his body raised. We've heard it from those who have seen it, and eyewitness proof is a solid proof but we see it in the Scripture, so we can trust God's Word. Uh, But let me encourage you, when you see this, it ought to draw us to deepen our understanding of God's Word. I mean, shouldn't we be praying for the Spirit to deepen our understanding of God's Word? Friends, let's not be naive, thinking we can open the Bible like you open the journal. It's it's different. It's significant. We want to pray, ask the Spirit of God, like David. He says... Open my eyes to wondrous things in your law, David prays to God in Psalm 119. So can we ask God's Spirit, help me to see the beauty of Christ in your word. Help me to see the beauty of your mercy. Friends, if you have trouble understanding the Bible, or if it's dry, or if it's boring, or it's difficult to understand, or if you don't remember it, Five minutes after you read it, just stop and ask God, give me a hunger for the word. Give me a passion to understand your word. Ask the spirit to illuminate you, to convict you, to encourage you. Ask God for his spirit to illuminate his word to you, that you might gain and grow in understanding. You see the change that took place in these these dull disciples. Don't we want the same change in our own souls? So so let's ask for that. And this is really where we can kind of help each other too. We can encourage one another. Studying the Bible together. It's what the church is for. He's given teachers to the church to help explain these things that you might grow in their understanding. So you see this Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection has been proved. The resurrection has been promised by God and fulfilled. But look last with me. The resurrection is to be proclaimed. We are the ones now that are called to proclaim it. Look with me at 47 to 49. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here, Jesus, these are his very last words. As I said, verse 50 to 53, he ascends into heaven. So here he is. He is gathering his disciples, and he's saying, um, you are now to proclaim this message. What message? Well, the message is this. Simply put, the message is that God has so loved the world that he gave his son, this son has come to suffer and die and be raised so as to create a way by which we who are sinners can find forgiveness and be drawn back and reconciled to God. Uh, that's the message, right? Paul said it simply this way in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'd remind you brothers and sisters of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you stand. He says, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. He says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. In other words, what he's saying is this is the whole story. And this is the message. The message is that for the sinner, for the human being, who has just a litany of evidence of his own brokenness. We know there's more. There's eternity has been set in our heart. We know there's something more. We want something more. We never meet satisfaction. That there is a way that God has provided for us to be reconciled to the one who made us and for us to find total satisfaction and joy. And it's this message that he died. He died For us. He was buried for us. He was raised for us. He was raised from the dead. This has made it such that we can go out and proclaim that you can repent and be saved. Repent of your sins and you can be forgiven. That God will forgive. Forgive based upon him, Jesus, what he has done. Not because of your sincerity, The the forgiveness is not because you really mean it this time. The forgiveness is granted to us because of Christ. Uh, Think about the ministry of Jesus for a minute. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon had this sermon. It's called Christ's First and Last Subject. It's Christ's First and Last Subject. First thing Christ came to do was preach, right? In Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So he preaches repentance and faith to salvation, to the kingdom. The last thing he says to his disciples before he ascends is what? Preach repentance. First and last subjects preach repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is when we, uh, it's more than remorse. It's more than I feel bad someone's hurt. It's more than I feel bad that I've embarrassed myself again. Repentance is a turning. I now see my life has been lived with me on the throne, and it's led to all kinds of self-centered behavior. It's me seeing that, rejecting it, seeing its sinfulness, and going to God for forgiveness, and salvation by faith, trusting in Christ, not in what we will be, not in what we can be, but in what he has done for us. That's the message. And what he said here is you go to the nations with this message. But notice, he says, beginning in Jerusalem. Why begin in Jerusalem? That's where they killed him. You go to the people that killed me first. That's the mercy of God. He's going to the ones who kill him first. You go back to them. Give them the first chance to repent and believe. This is a merciful God. I, we don't have categories to understand this. This is, go back to them first. Give them the first chance to hear and believe in turn. He says, you're my witnesses, and you know, those of us who are witnesses, and by witnesses, those who testify to the change of God in our own life and the forgiveness, we're the ones that go. And we go to the nations. Folks, this is why we desire to build up our, our missions emphasis in the church, why while we, while we dedicate a large percentage of the budget to it. We do want the nations all, not because we're counting scalps, we want the nations to know so that the glory of God might be enjoyed by the breath of his creation. That's why, we want them to know. You know, if you're a Christian here, when you felt the weight of sin fall off, when you came to understand, I really can be forgiven, when you, when you came to, and, the, and the relief you had, Maybe, maybe it was manifest in tears. Maybe it was just the burdens removed. We want others to have that same feeling. I mean, it's like, a, you know, the, the joy of a beggar who finds bread. He wants to share it with other beggars too. That's us. So, so we're called to take this message. But notice, you're, you're like, yeah, Tom, I'm not an evangelist. I can't do this sort of thing. I, I, I don't have all the answers to all the apologetical issues that there are. I can't defend all the stuff that's raised to me. But notice what Jesus said. He's sending out these disciples, and and he he says to them, I will will send the promise of the Father. Okay, back in John 16, Jesus promised that the Father would send the Spirit. He'll send the Spirit to us. Do you see the triune God right here? Jesus asking the Father for the Spirit. The triune God will equip his church with power. And not a power like you're going to become a Marvel character. It's a power of the Spirit that will give you the right words. You'll have the right posture. You'll have the right timing. It may be difficult. It may be painful sometimes. but, But then that it will produce a fruit by which you have trouble believing it's been produced. He'll use you. All of you. Not just the trained people. He uses you. So so let me just wrap it up with this. You, you see the resurrection is proved, the resurrection was promised, and that we, those who remain, who have been, t- we proclaim this message. Now, I, I hope for those of us, because we all are together, and this is so sweet, I hope you, for those of you who are here who are uncertain about where you stand with God, do you hear that the the message is repentance and faith that to be forgiven of sin to be reconciled to God to no longer fear death it comes through faith in Jesus and the faith is anchored in the fact that he came and lived he died and he was raised again this is what we need to believe this is what we need to hold firmly to this is by which we're saved I hope today That you would consider that wherever you stand with God, do you understand this message? Do you understand the need to repent for the forgiveness of sins? There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But I also pray that for those of you who have repented, you enjoy right now the promise that you will be raised just as he was raised. Would you rejoice with me? Would Would you take the issues of your life, the struggles, the trials, the issues, the uncertainties? What am I going to do with my life? What about my relationships? What about my job? What about my health? All those things are legitimate concerns. They just have to be drawn into the same picture that you have of this story, that he's been raised from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of God far above rule authority and power and dominion for us. They just have to be drawn into that picture And, and, and it will change the way you look at them. And I think it will lead you to a happiness even in the midst of uncertainty. And then I pray too that we might be a people who find that heartbeat for evangelism to begin welling up in us. This is unbelievable news. Folks, you turn to any news channel and it is depressing. And then you come to the pages of the scripture and you have promises like this that we can cling to that can change our life. Yeah, it changes the day. I pray that you would look around, you'd be praying, who are those in your life that would want to, that would need to hear this repentance for the forgiveness of sins? I know you don't feel up for it, but we've already heard this promise that we don't need to be up for it. He will clothe us with power on high and I pray too that for this Easter as you're together with family uh, that you would just rejoice in these good things for us these are good things for us and I pray that even in the midst of the difficulties that we have uh, that we would find this to be like an anchor like ballast to a boat keeping us straight not capsizing not being tossed to and fro so friends I'm so thankful to be here with you, to gather together. Let's join together in praying. God, make a way for us to be together again in one service all the time. And uh, let me pray for you and then we'll, we'll sing. Father, uh, grant to us the grace and mercy we need to understand the, the reality and the beauty of these truths. Lord, um, they are familiar to us and yet we can't get our minds around them. Father, help us. By the power of your Spirit, help us uh, to begin to see these things in a new light. Deepen our understanding, Spirit, that we might see these in a new, a deeper, a fresher light, that you would be glorious to us. You have established a new reign now in your Son with the coming of your Spirit. We are in a new age. We are in a new kingdom. We're a new people. Father, grant these truths to us to mingle and change the present circumstances that we're in, to change them from glory to glory. Father, grant that to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.